Welcome back to the show. Jody Vance in for Mike Smith today and tomorrow. Happy to be conducting today's edition of Baldry's Beat, where we connect with Global BC Legislative Bureau Chief. Hey, Keith. Hey, Jody. Good to talk with you, boy. Busy you news cycle. Holy. <laughs> where, where to begin, my friend? Where Never ending. Well, can I can I tap into your contacts about what we might expect at the at the eleven thirty uh, press briefing with uh, Transportation Minister Rob Fleming and uh, Public Safety Minister as well as Deputy Premier Mike Farnworth that that we we only found out moments before we went to air this morning at nine o'clock that that was happening at eleven thirty today. What are you well, hearing? Yeah, so they're they're going to be doing this pretty well every day. Um, okay. I had a conversation with him on the weekend, pointing out that, uh, you know, given the public's insatiable thirst for knowledge about everything, at first to do with COVID, now to do with highway uh, openings, gasoline restrictions, rationings, this type of thing, that they should do this every single day, and that's what they're doing. So I expect today... Uh, the big news today will be the opening of Highway 1, and we should be getting more more details on that from Transportation Minister Rob Fleming. I think that's going to be the big one. There's going to be an update, again, on all the highway closures, uh, an update on the supply chain um, uh, situation. CP Rail, uh, yesterday, that's a huge move when they're, they're able to open their line. We should get an update on when CN could open their line. Uh, so the flow of goods is going to start uh, improving because of the rail lines. The the truck movements are more complicated given the the um, r- road closures. The Hokahal is just a write off, obviously, yeah. for yeah. for some time. I mean, I keep pointing out to people, Hokahal is our our basically our newest highway in many ways, next to the Island Highway. It was only established in nineteen or built in nineteen eighty six. We you know we, we're going back to life pre Kokahala, uh back mm-hmm. in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, when we, that line, that route did not exist. And that's not going to exist for some time. It's going to take months to either build a temporary or permanent solution to what is five broken places of that highway. We're not talking about minor adjustments. These are significant disruptions in that route. High elevations, when winter's coming, hard to fix. So uh, a lot of, uh, and we'll get an agriculture update from Agriculture Minister Lana Poffin in terms of milk production, uh, the state of livestock. And there's ongoing uh, questions, of course, about uh, disaster relief. There is the disaster uh, financial relief program uh, a financial assistance program where you can claim up to 80% of your uh, damages uh, up mm-hmm. to a maximum of $300,000. That's an ongoing program. There's probably thousands of claims about to be submitted there. And you can just start working the numbers and see how expensive this is going to be. The cost is really quite something. And in listening to Minister Fleming uh, yesterday, when he got some questions from the press uh, briefing, mm-hmm about the Coquihalla, he literally was like, you know what, we're not even going to, we're not even going to talk. We might do a press briefing that's just about the Coquihalla. And I heard you yesterday with Mike on this segment talking about how when the Coquihalla was built, people were saying, you can't do that. You can't, you can't build a highway up and over a mountain like that. Mm -hmm. And yes, it was done, but now we're seeing just how much damage can befall it when mother nature does what she does. It's, yeah, so when the Coquihalla was built, um, there was a subsequent post-construction commission of inquiry about whether or not certain engineering decisions were made because it was fast-tracked for political purposes to have it open for Expo 86. Mm-hmm. And there were questions at the time, like, did was every all the I's dotted, all the T's crossed, 
properly when it came to engineering and in a really tricky situation. It's very unclear whether or not any of that played a role in what happened in this uh, on this highway last week. Um, but clearly, there was there was it was it's been regarded forever as an engineering marvel. Anybody who's driven the Coquihalla has to be impressed with like how did you build a highway up here? I mean, this is this is a, a high elevation. I mean, I've dro- I've driven it a number of times, and I remember driving it in July in the snow. So yeah. <laughs> uh, it's been extraordinary weather situations there. But um, again, this was an extraordinary weather event, and I'm not sure what role the construction of the Coquihalla played in the literally five washouts. And we're not talking washouts. This is like a twig being snapped, um, clean break in five different locations, and it's going to be a real challenge to fix that thing. Um, and again, Mike Farnworth is, and Rob Fleming have talked about months before that thing's open again. Yeah, they don't even want to put a date on it because, as you mentioned, you know, at high elevation, the weather there is always extreme, especially over the summit. Let's talk about extreme weather and also the the emergency debate on the flooding in BC specifically. The Prime Minister uh, made these comments about building with climate change in mind. Have a listen. We have invested record amounts uh, in infrastructure, not only in response to disasters, but in uh, flood mitigation in uh, in and around Calgary, for example, in uh, water controls uh, throughout the prairies, uh, in building back better after uh, floods uh, in the in the central Canada in the east. We've continued to invest in resilience and adaptation. We will continue to. But yes, uh, the disaster uh, program is oversubscribed. We will continue to increase funding as we help communities and Canadians uh, get through these difficult times. So Keith, I need you to uh, unpack that a little bit, unspin it for me, well, uh, oversubscribed. What, what does that mean? Well, it, 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 basically the lesson here, I think, and, and the Prime Minister sort of is getting at it, is that the, the, the investment that's been made to date is being dwarfed now by what's going to be required. So for example, the, the dike system in uh, just the Fraser Valley, Metro Vancouver. Some estimates are that's a $10 billion uh, requirement of just um, buttressing and raising the dikes along the very river systems in Metro Vancouver. So when you talk about oversubscribe, we're just basically uh, more use is required out of the infrastructure investment right. um, uh, that's being made. And again, the Prime Minister points, you know, quotes a dollar figure there, but all that's kind of in the past. What's required now going forward is extraordinary. It wasn't there two weeks ago. It was. It, it, it may have been predicted, but what's the reality now is it's billions of dollars of investment and repairs going forward, whether it's dikes, highways, uh, the whole notion of building highways in B.C. We're, we're just a unique province in our sort of mountainous terrain where our highways are, are hugging mountains and hillsides that may become unstable because of massive amounts of, of rainwater pouring down and on to saturated areas. So these slides, people have, we've had slides before. We've never had all these slides at the same time on critical infrastructure highways. And that's going to have to be addressed. And that's going to cost, again, billions of dollars. We're going to keep talking about BC flooding, of course. I want to shift here to the paid sick leave uh, press mm-hmm. briefing that happened yesterday. I was, again, listening to you and Mike, and and you guys had the crystal ball going about where you thought this might land. Harry Baines, Minister of Labour, uh, speaks to how they landed exactly where you predicted on the five days. Have a listen. They were wide-ranging. There were uh, some who were saying, 10 days plus there should be, should be the minimum. And then there were others who were saying, 
don't do anything. So when, when we looked at uh, how many actual days workers are utilizing when they are too sick to go to work, 87% of them reported that they utilize five days or less. So that's how we arrived at that based on the data and that research. And, you know, Keith, uh, we're going to have both sides of the debate that's ongoing as to whether or not five is clearly not enough or clearly too many. Uh, where do you see this in terms of, of how it's landed with five days? Well, I think they basically cut it down the middle. I mean, business uh, lobbies were advocating zero or, you know, one. Uh, Quebec has two days. Prince Edward Island has one. That's, those are the only other provinces. Uh, BC Federation of Labor and union groups were advocating 10 days. Uh, again, it was a no-brainer to see the government coming down proverbially in the middle. Um, and now five days of, uh, already we're hearing from the BC Chamber, uh, Board of Trade, uh, the uh, Canadian Federation of Independent Business, that this is somehow a, a, a crushing financial blow for small businesses. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, Harry Baines and the government are arguing that these are people uh, by and large, they're, non, they're non-union. They're a disproportionately high number of women and racialized minorities in these jobs that are affected by, by something like this. And I go back to the beginning of the pandemic. Uh, Jody, I remember doing a story very early on where a woman somewhat distraught told me that her husband was sick and she was convinced he had COVID-19, but he had to go to work because he was afraid of losing his job if he, if he called in sick. And it was at a food processing plant. Again, it was uh, racialized work minorities, uh, immigrants. And sure enough, that particular plant uh, ended up having a serious outbreak of more than 40 people getting sick uh, because this person went to work when he shouldn't have gone to work and because he was afraid of losing his job. So that's where the ground has shifted, I think, uh, from pre-pandemic where COVID is, is... sort of thrust into the spotlight the issue of being sick in the workplace. And I remember throughout the pandemic, I've been charting how many businesses have closed and been required to close because of COVID-19 outbreaks on the premises or amongst the staff, hundreds of businesses. And if you think paying people five days of sick, of sick pay is going to rob your business of, of, uh, of revenue or ex- at, at an expense, Contrast that to having to close your business for yeah. you know two weeks, which is a COVID closure. It's not one day; it's two weeks minimum, and that can really put yourself out of business. So, uh, being sick in the workplace is a, is in a different situation now than it was pre-pandemic. Jody Vanson for Mike today, continuing with Baldry's beef. Uh, Keith Baldry, Global BC Legislative Bureau Chief, taking your calls now on anything you want to bring up with Keith, of course. But we've been focusing on the BC flooding emergency. There was a debate last night. Uh, in Parliament. Uh, we've also got the update coming from Public Safety Minister and Deputy Premier Mike Farnworth, as well as Transportation Minister Rob Fleming. 11.30 press briefing. You'll hear it right here uh, on this radio station. Uh, we got to get straight to the phone lines, Keith. we got Andrew in Kamloops up first. Andrew, welcome. Uh, hi, thanks for taking my call. I just uh, recently with my work, I would get like two weeks of vacation a year and I, they would also give me two sick days. They took my sick days away and just gave us two more vacation days per year. And I'm curious, are we going to be able to keep our sick days or, or sorry, our vacation days as well as get five sick days now? Or is the government going to be using vacation time as your employer paid sick time? Yeah, that's a very good question. It'll be interesting whether some employers try to take away vacation time. Uh, paid vacation time, uh, if you suddenly claim your five days, which is one week of uh, of uh, sick days. So we're starting out on a new 
a new situation. We haven't been down this road before, although we did do uh, in the pandemic since May through November through October. The government did subsidize businesses to three sick days. Uh, that only cost $15 million, so there wasn't a great take-up. So it's not guaranteed that everybody's going to claim five sick days. Uh, many unionized work, most uh, unionized workplaces have collective agreements that have sick days in, built into the collective agreement. But there's plenty of example of people not using up their sick days. It's uh, it, They are treated differently than vacation days. But um, it'll be interesting to see... If there's any abuses of this uh, of this uh, this new structure of sick days going forward, six zero four two eight zero ninety eight ninety eight star ninety eight ninety eight is a free call on your cell. Baldry's beat your questions for Keith Baldry. Let's go to Ward in Shimanus. Welcome, Ward. Yeah, hi. Um, so my question specific. I have uh, a number of uh, retail shops, and one of the shops is an ice cream store that uh, opens through the summer, and I hire a lot of short-term part-time employees. You know, I have, you know, kids that are 15 to, let's say, 18 that only want to maybe work two days a week. So how does this sick day work for them? So if I have them on shift, they're supposed to come in on a Saturday, but on Friday night they get a call from a you know, buddy and, well, they want to go to the lake, and all of a sudden they call in and they're, they're sick. And I've, I've only maybe had them on for, for five shifts in the, mm-hmm. in the whole summer. So how's that going to work? To be honest, I'm I'm not an employment lawyer, so I'm not entirely sure how this applies to part-time workers. Uh, you raise a very good point. There is uh, small businesses generally have a lot of part-time people, and I'm not sure if this is going to apply to um, the same way to part-time people than full-time people. So right. uh, I have to so, be honest, I'm not entirely sure. So can I ask you a question then? Mm-hmm. If if you were the government, don't you think? you would have figured that out before you roll something like this out? Well, I'm not saying that they haven't figured it out. We just haven't seen the fine print yet. We haven't seen the details. We haven't seen the regulations. This often comes after the announcement's made, but you raise a very good point and one I intend to pursue. So good one, Ward. Thank you very much for uh, posing that question because it is one food for thought for sure. Let's go to Julia in Vancouver. Welcome to the show, Julia. Oh, hi, Jody. Um I was just listening to you talking about the fact that the Coquihalla was very high and how difficult it might be to build at that altitude, but it's really uh, not very high. It's only 1,200 meters, and when you look at a country like Switzerland, they've got lots of highways that are built way higher than that, like up to about 2,400, 2,500 meters. Mm -hmm. No, they are, and, and they have some engineering challenges there as well, so... I'm not saying it's uh, it's impossible. It's just it's a it's a challenge. It's not so much the elevation. It's also very remote. There's not a lot of access roads to the Coquihalla. You know, I talked to Rob Fleming about this. You can helicopter heavy equipment into into these sites. Some of these sites that are where they're broken, they're in very remote areas. There's just nothing else around it, and and that's one of the challenges here. There's there's a lack of arterial roads and side roads. There are some side roads and logging roads that connect to the Coquihalla but not like uh, Highway 1 or, uh, or some of the other sort of urbanized uh, highway systems. All right, Keith, we are out of time for today's Baldry's Beat, but I'll look forward to chatting with you again tomorrow. tomorrow. Thanks as always. Thanks, yes. For most of us, crime is something we see on the news. We never think it could happen to us until it does. 
Loved ones are gone, and for the survivors, the scars will never heal. I'm Nancy Hickst, a senior crime reporter for Global News. And on this season of Crime Beat, I'll take you inside some of the most serious crime stories I've covered. Season six of Crime Beat is available now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and all podcast platforms.